Man, if you have your Bible with you, uh, go ahead and grab it and turn with me to John chapter 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, you should see one around you. Uh, we would love for you to use that to follow along. Uh, if you don't own a Bible, you take that one with you. That's, that's our gift uh, to you. Uh, we're going to be in uh, John 19. We're going to be looking at the first 16 verses there together this morning. If you are new here or visiting with us... Um, our methodology, our normal way of approaching the Word of God is just to go uh, book by book, uh, chapter by chapter, verse by verse uh, through God's Word. And we don't do that because we aren't creative, although I will confess, I don't think anybody has ever accused me of being a creative person. Um, I, I wish, but that's not my gifting necessarily. Uh, we don't do it because we're not creative. We don't do it because we um, uh, can't think of a better way or don't like topical preaching, we do it because we believe that God has spoken to us in an order, that he's given us his word in order, and we think it's best to to follow along with that. Now, we did take a little break around Christmas for Advent, but we stayed in the same passage for five messages, so I think you can forgive us on that one. But for the most part, for the last year, and it's uh, if you have watched your calendar, this Sunday is actually uh, the 53rd Sunday of us being in this building, um, because we have a late Easter this year. And so uh, this, is, this is over a year we've been going through the fourth gospel together, and that is coming to an end. And so uh, it's our tradition here at Rivercrest to stand for the reading of God's word. We do this to, uh, because it shows that our foundation, our one foundation upon which we stand, the rock on which we stand, and the authority under which we live is the word of Uh, the living God. So would you stand with me now, if you're willing and able, as we tune our hearts to hear from the Lord today. We're in John 19, but I'm actually going to start in in chapter 18 and verse 38. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want for me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. And so Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you 
has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement and in Aramaic, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king. They cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. Lord, I thank you for this opportunity to gather with your people under your authority, in your place, under your rule and your reign today. Lord, I beg of you to come and speak to us this morning, to come and share with us that we might be drawn closer to you, that we might know you more, that we might serve you more faithfully in this world, that we might see your light and that we might reflect that glory as we go out into this community. Lord, empower our hearts today to hear from you. Open our blind eyes, unstop our deaf ears, and awaken our souls this morning. This is not just another day. It's not even just another Sunday. This is a divine appointment that you arranged with us from before the foundations of the earth that we would be here this morning. Lord, help us to feel that now. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of my uh, favorite things about being a father, uh, about being a daddy, you know, is when one of them calls uh, me, like calls my name, uh, calls me to, to come and look at something. Uh, I love that moment. I love it when, uh, I love it for a bunch of reasons. I love the fact that, uh, I love the fact that my kids are excited about something. I mean, that's one thing right there. I just love that they're excited about something. In a world that seems so dead set on being mundane about basically everything, I love it when my children are excited about something, man. Just reminds me that like youthful energy. I, I love that. I, I love the fact that they want to invite me into that with them, that they, when they see something and they get excited about it, that they think I want to bring him along into this. Uh, I love um, that they want to share it and that they want, uh, and that they want to share it with me specifically. And, and I love the anticipation of what it is that they're going to show me. I love that moment of, of you've heard the cry to come and see it, and I love that moment of what am I gonna what am I gonna find around this corner? Uh, now to be straight with you, sometimes uh, the last one can be a bit disappointing. Uh, sometimes the thing that they're excited about showing isn't all that exciting, right? I mean, like uh, I mean, we've had everything from. I need you to come and see me do a flip on the trampoline for the first time, which was awesome, right? I mean, it's it's really cool to see him do that. To, um, to you know, come and see this line that I drew on a piece of paper. Um, so you just really never know, never know what to expect. Um, but you got to be on your toes. There's this incredible joy that they feel when you enter into their space, when you come into their into their moment with them. 
And I love that. Uh, I love that they, they get so excited about it. Our youngest is the most dramatic with it. I think that maybe is just the gift of the third child. Um, but he's, he's, the, he's the baby, and so he's got, he's got a little flair to him. He makes you earn it a little bit. That's kind of the way he, he works. So you walk into his room, and he looks at you with this little smile that he's got. And then with expert timing and precision, and I promise you I'm not making this up uh, the other day, uh, he pointed, I walk into his room, and he pointed at one of his stuffed animals, very dramatically, very powerfully pointed at one of his stuffed animals, sitting up on his bed, perfectly balanced there, and he points at this thing, sitting up, and I'm, I'm honestly trying to figure out what it is I'm supposed to be looking at, right, because I've seen his bed before, I've also seen this stuffed animal before, uh, but he points at it, and he says, and he's five, he says, behold, And I just stood there, like, waiting for him to give me an indication of what I was to be beholding. And, uh, and it, was this, it was a monkey, you know, sitting on the bed, whatever. Um, that is sort of how I felt an anticipation of, of, this, of this passage as I've gone through this week. I've wanted to, like my kid wanted to run into the kitchen and say, come and see. I've wanted to call you all. I've wanted to, I didn't, all right? I didn't do that. I wanted to. I wanted to call all of you and to come and look at this with me, to come enjoy this with me because I'm excited about this. I wanted you to come running into this room this morning, excited to see what, what God has to show us. I wanted you to come in here with anticipation in your heart that God is going to show you something today. I wanted to present it to you with all the dramatic splendor of a five-year-old with his stuffed animal, and, and I don't know if I can pull that off, but that's what I want. I want you to have that in your heart every week when you come in here, that you're not just coming into something, but you're coming to commune with the living God and to hear his word preached. And so I'm asking you right now to, to come and see, to come with me for just a minute. In our passage this morning, we find this scene moving rapidly toward the cross. It is getting quick at this point. And in the midst of it, right there in verse 5, Pilate said to the people, he walks out onto the platform, and he says to the mob of people, he says, Behold the man. Behold the man. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to behold. We're going to fix our eyes on Jesus and behold him in the light that the fourth evangelist places on him. And we are going to behold him as the people in John 19 would have beheld him. So that's, that's where the curtain rises for us this morning. That's where the scene begins. And he offered there, uh, he, he, he has testified to the crowd. This is Pilate. He has testified to the crowd saying, I find no guilt in him, right? That's the first witness that Pilate, Pilate gives about Jesus. I find no guilt in him. Now it's not a Christian witness, and I'm not suggesting that Pilate has trusted in Jesus Christ as the Messiah or even that he has the theological background or framework to conceive of such a thing. Pilate is at best a polytheistic pagan. Um, it's doubtful that he ever fully understood all the language of Christ or Messiah, but all truth is God's truth. And so his testimony is powerful. Pilate's testimony, he finds no guilt in him, is powerful because the reality is that he has nothing to gain 
by Jesus being innocent. It doesn't benefit him if Jesus is innocent. It actually works against him in terms of his political status. And so what we see here is Pilate, Pontius Pilate, is just stating the truth. And we almost see a level of sympathy from Pilate towards Jesus. And he offered there in verse 39 a way out. You see, he wants to set him free. But, but when the crowd cries out the name of Barabbas, Pilate tries a different strategy. Look back at verse 1. We're told there in verse 1 that Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Now, that doesn't sound sympathetic at all. Um, that's, that's, a, that's not a sympathetic strategy. Um, you know, to have Jesus flogged uh, isn't, isn't sympathetic when he believes Jesus is innocent. And we should be careful here not to, not to think of this flogging as the scourging that he's going to receive before the cross. In the Roman judicial system, there are three different types of beatings. And this flogging right here is probably the first level of that. This, this is like somebody who stole something from somebody else. And so they beat them a little bit and then they turn them loose. They make a little example of them. That's probably what's happening here in this first time. So Pilate is having him beaten, but this isn't the scourging that would come Later, Now, I don't want to minimize the brutality of what took place. It was terrible, even at this stage. And the soldiers had some fun with it, didn't they? They took it upon themselves to give Jesus the crown of thorns. They took the initiative to put him in a robe and, and hit him in the face. They were masters of humiliation. And Jesus was their target. But this wasn't the worst of it. It seems from the composite picture with the other Gospels that this is just a precursor to what is to come. This was a ploy. Look back at verse 4. There in verse 4, because, because after this we're told that Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. There it is a second time. This is now the second time that Pilate has openly professed, he's openly witnessed, testified to to Jesus' innocence. And it's a consistent witness. You see, everyone witnesses to something. Everyone. Don't ever forget that. That every single person that you will ever meet is a witness to something. And as crazy as it might sound, at this moment, Pilate is actually testifying to the truth. And so he says, Behold the man. And reading this week, I was struck by what D.A. Carson said about this scene. He said, He said, in his dramatic utterance, Pilate is speaking with dripping irony. Here is the man you find so dangerous and threatening. Can you see he is harmless and now somewhat ridiculous? In one statement, Pilate is mocking both Jesus and the Jewish leadership. At the same time, he's exerted his authority over Jesus by having him flogged, an authority that Jesus points out is only there because it is from above. In other words, it comes from Jesus. Pilate is exerting authority over Jesus with the authority that Jesus gave him to exert over him. I think that's, I think that's right. You see how ridiculous this is. You know I have the authority to release you. You know I have the authority to, to, to crucify you. And Jesus is going, yeah, I know, I put you there. I think you get there. You have the authority because we put you there. And now Pilate's saying to the Jews, this guy is what you're afraid of? This is Maximus crying out, are you not entertained? Have I not done enough at this point? This man is beaten. He is bruised. He's scratched. He's bleeding. He has a crown of thorns on his head. 
and he's clothed in a dirty robe of filth. So I want to pause. Listen to me. For those of you who have suffered, for those of you who have been abused, for those of you who have been mistreated, who have been told that you are nothing and that you are nobody, and then thrown out into public carrying the weight of that shame and that embarrassment, I want you to hear me. Jesus knows that feeling. He knows how that feels. He's been in your shoes. He has walked your path, felt the aching of your heart, because what we see right here is that he has lived that. And what do the people cry out? Look at their response there in verse 6. Because when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out. That means they shouted it. That They proclaimed this. Pilate's testifying and they are shouting back against him. What are they shouting? Crucify him. Crucify him. I can't help but think of how many of us have been absolutely destroyed by the world. Have been made to, to think and to feel of ourselves lower than a worm in this life, beaten, abused, and embarrassed, only to stand out in public, to step out into the light, only to have the religious folks shout those same words about us. And then, surprise, surprise, Pilate's final response, his third witness is the same song as the first two. He says it there in verse 6. Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. If the trial of Jesus is a song, the threefold chorus is a testimony of his innocence. But as we saw last week, hatred and sin have no real interest in the truth. It's like, it's like the Apostle Paul asked in 2 Corinthians 6, 14. You remember that where he said, what fellowship has light with darkness? And we see it. We see it as it continues here. Whatever sympathy that Pilate thought he might be able to stir in these people fails to gain any traction. And the hypocrisy of the religious leaders is impossible to ignore. These same people who would not enter the governor's headquarters because they might defile themselves and not be able to eat the Passover meal. Those same people who were so worried about stepping in somebody's house and becoming unclean, now they are more than willing to shout out loud, to testify to their desire to have an innocent man put to death. That is hypocrisy of the highest level. They are the whitewashed tombs that Jesus talked about in Matthew 23, where he said, woe to you. A a woe, by the way, is never good. You hear woe, that's bad. Woe to you. I've never used that with my kids, but I've thought about for dramatic effect. If I've got a five-year-old who say, behold, I need to be able to say, woe to you, son of mine, right? Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, This is what he says, for you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. This is Jesus' cry against empty, faithless religion. It's a cry against that sort of religion that shows up on a Sunday, probably bows its head, maybe sings the songs, maybe even takes really good notes of the sermon. Like, you've got a great-looking journal, man, but never bears any fruit in their life. No pursuit of holiness, no discipline, no training in righteousness. 
It's a cry against that religion that calls out people on social media, but never points them to any loving, merciful God. It's the religion that expects God to give us more stuff, but never offers to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. It's like a whitewashed tomb. It's beautiful on the outside, but if you were on the inside, you'd see there's nothing in there but death. There's no life in it. This is empty religion. And that's what we see here, is that that the empty religion didn't cry out, blessed be the name of the Lord, but rather shouted, crucify him, crucify him. They didn't want the Holy One. They didn't want that. His holiness exposed their depravity like a light shining into the darkness, into the comfort of the darkness of their lives. It reminded them of how far short they fall of the glory of God. That's what the holiness of Christ does. Calvin talked about Christ as as like a mirror. It's like when we see him, that it, it not only see him, we see ourselves in our true light. We begin to understand our own hearts. We begin to understand our depravity. We understand how far short that we fall. That's what the holiness of Christ does. It shows us an image of glory. And when we look at him, we see all of our mess too. And apart from the work of Christ's spirit in us, we hate that. We hate being exposed. I hate seeing myself as I really am. Can I confess that to you? I don't know if this is safe or not. I hate it when God shows me my sin. My initial response is not, oh God, let me, let me worship you. It's let me hide. It's like, where are the fig leaves so I can make another, another loincloth to hide in the woods so he can never find me? I begin to look just like the first Adam, playing hide and seek with a God who sees everything. He sees us in all of our mess. A Christ, apart from Christ's spirit in us, we hate it. Without the eyes to see, without the eyes of God, we recognize the truth, but we suppress it. We hate it. It blinds us just as it, just as it blinded them. They didn't want Jesus. They didn't. They didn't want the humble servant riding into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. That doesn't sound cool. They wanted the mighty warrior. They wanted the guy who's going to ride on the white horse. They wanted the cool chariot. Maybe he's got a big spear, right? They wanted that guy. I mean, they wanted the guy who's going to come in with the, with the cape. I mean, I think it'd be cool to have a cape, to come in with a cape. Triumphant, mighty. They had forgotten. They'd forgotten about Jacob, right? They'd forgotten about Isaac's son, the one who wrestled with God and spent the rest of his life leading with a limp. They'd forgotten about They've forgotten about Moses, right? The spokesman, the, the, the voice of God. They've forgotten about how he walked into Egypt and stuttered the words to say, let my people go. They've forgotten about David. I know we think of David as the warrior king, but that isn't how David started out. They forgot about David, the weakling of the family who was called to defeat the giant while the mighty Saul who was chosen to be king because he was the best looking and the biggest and strongest dude. They forgot about David because they wanted Saul. They forgot about Esther. They forgot about the servant girl made queen who stood up against the evil of Persia and delivered the people of Israel from destruction. They forgot. They'd forgotten that in the scandal of God's redemptive plan, he often uses the weak, the humble, and the, and the marginalized. 
to defeat the strong, the proud, and the prominent. Jesus had been pointed to in each of those people. In every single one of them. And yet it was the religious people who missed him. Because their eyes couldn't see and in their hearts they still longed for. Well, they still longed for the white horse. They didn't want a son of David. They wanted a son of Saul. They wanted the strong. They wanted the powerful. They didn't want this Messiah. They wanted Barabbas. They wanted Barabbas. Now, John tells us that Barabbas was a robber. That's what it says there, that Barabbas was a robber. And in in his gospel, Mark, speaking of Barabbas, tells us that there was among the rebels in prison, there was this one who had been who had committed murder in the insurrection. And then Luke says that Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Okay, So there's this witness about this guy, Barabbas. And then Matthew calls him a a notorious prisoner. That's the way Matthew talks about Barabbas. He's a a notorious prisoner. And all that means is is that the stuff that he had done had been known. That he had a reputation in town. This guy didn't take stuff from the Romans, man. He gave it. He'd even be willing to kill to make it happen. They knew he was guilty of, of leading in an uprising against that ruling authority. Barabbas had tried to take down Rome and people had died because of his role in that cause. He had stolen and he had murdered and he was the alternative option to Jesus. And I can't help but wonder what it would have been like to be in the shoes of Barabbas on this day. I mean, you can see him there. If you, if you really try, you can see him. He's there. He's sitting in prison in the Tower of Antonia. Just about, he's about 1,500 feet away from where, where Jesus was standing. Can you, can you imagine that? I want you to try and play along with me for just a minute. Can you imagine that? He's there, sort of, it's sort of like he's outside the stadium on a game day at Carolina and Clemson. Like he can't really see what's happening, but he's outside, so he can hear the roar of the crowd. He can't hear what Pilate's saying, because that's only one voice, but he can hear the shouts. He can hear the cries of the crowd. He knows the penalty for his crime. Okay, he knows what happens to those who rebel against the Roman Empire. They had perfected uh, what was probably a Persian form of capital punishment, and, and crucifixion had long been their preferred method of dealing with insurrection. Barabbas knows what's coming for him. And as he sat there that day waiting, think of what he would have been hearing from the shouts of the crowd. In verse 40, He would have heard them crying out. This is what he would have heard. Not this man, but Barabbas. So all he's hearing is a mob, a crowd, shouting his name. There is no way to shout anything and make it sound positive. You don't shout things and it sound positive. They're shouting, not this man, but Barabbas. He is hearing them shout his name. The next thing that he would have heard, and by the way, you tune in when you hear your name shouted by a mob. The next thing that he would have heard as he sat there in prison, was the cry of the crowd in verse 6 as they shouted, crucify him, crucify him. That's what Barabbas would have heard in the prison cell. He would have heard his own name followed by the cry to crucify him. Rick Phillips paints a picture of this scene. He says, imagine then 
with those dreadful cries ringing in his ears, the sinking heart and trembling hands of the insurrectionists as the fall of heavy feet sound in the corridor, the soldiers approaching his room to inflict the punishment that Barabbas knows he deserves. He hears the sound of the keys, his terror mounting as the door swings open. Yet, instead of receiving death, Barabbas is set free. Now imagine what he would have seen as he walked out of that prison. He would have seen the crowd. He would have seen the bloody and beaten Jesus as he struggled to carry the weight of the cross. He would have begun to realize, probably for the first time, what was happening. And as he beheld the man, he would have understood that this man, that this Jesus was the one who had taken his place. As I thought about this scene throughout the week, and as I found myself at times standing there along that road, what became clear is that Jesus truly took the place of Barabbas that day. Jesus was the substitute. That cross, that cross had been prepared for Barabbas. That hole in the ground where it would stand had been dug for Barabbas. The nails had been gathered together to go into the hands and the feet of Barabbas. The hammer in the soldier's hand had been picked up waiting for Barabbas that day. Jesus truly took his place. And we have no record we have no record of Barabbas coming to faith. He may, have, he, may have been, he may have been arrested the next day for all we know. But we know that on that day, he walked out of prison, that his chains had been loosed, that he had been set free. Because I've never been in a Roman prison. Uh, but apart from Christ, I'm just as much a sinner as Barabbas ever was. And the charge to me, the charge to you, and to everyone on earth today is the same as it was on that day. Behold the man. Behold the promised seed of Genesis 3.15, the one whom the enemy will bruise on the head before having his own head crushed by the man's feet. Behold the man who Moses spoke of in Deuteronomy 18.18, the one whom God promised saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers and I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. Behold the man. He is the one that God spoke of to David in 2 Samuel 7.16 when God said, your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forevermore. Behold that man. He is the one whom the prophet Zechariah heard of and spoke of when God said, you'll recognize some of the language here. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown and set it on the head of Joshua. By the way, Joshua's name is just another version of Jesus' name. He's literally saying, put a crown on Jesus' head, the high priest, and say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts. What does God say to Zechariah? Behold the man whose name is the branch for he shall branch out from this place and he shall build the temple of the Lord. And we know that he's not talking about an earthly temple. Like, do you see him? He's there, man. I want you to see him. I want you, I want you to, like my kid, I want you to come here, come here, come here, come here. Come here. You got to see this, you got to see, you got to see him. See him, daddy. 
Like a child, I want you to see him. He is the Lord. He is the righteous one, man. He's the holy one, the holy branch. He is the one who took your place. He is the one who paid the penalty for your sin. Can you behold him? Can you behold that man? See the one who reconciles us to God through his blood-bought salvation. See the one whom for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you see him? The other day, uh, my son was so proud to show me a picture that he made, of, uh, he made it at his preschool. You know they do this. They make a picture of their parents and they write stuff about them and it's like really funny. So like my favorite food evidently in my child's mind is macaroni and cheese or something, you know. And so he's so excited to show me this picture. And he, so he says, Daddy, Daddy, look at this picture. Look at, come and see it, come and see it, come and see it. And, and I love that picture, man. It is special to me. Uh, it's hanging in his room, uh, but it's special to me. Now, it looks nothing like me. No, because in my child's mind, evidently, I'm, a, uh, I'm an African-American man who has lots of hair that sticks straight up into the air. This is, this is how he, my kid, only one who had a black daddy in the whole place. It was me. And I'm sure all the other kids were very surprised when I came in looking very, very, uh, well, whatever. Anyway. I just said he's, he's abstract, you know, he's, he's talented. He couldn't wait for me to see it. He couldn't wait for me to see it. You know, many of those people who saw Jesus that day, they did not understand. They did not get it. They didn't really see him. As we look on Jesus today, as we behold the man, we don't just see a guy. We don't just see a Savior. We see the Savior. We see the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who Jesus is. He took my sin. He took my place. Because he paid that penalty for me, by faith in him, I am set free. That's what it means to behold Jesus. And unlike Barabbas, who we have no record of what happened to him, we know that the chains that we've been set free from, they don't ever come back. You see, once Jesus sets you free, what does he say? He says, you will be free indeed. May God give us eyes to see him today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I do thank you again for your word to us. I pray that you would that you would clean up whatever mess I've made, that you would come and by your spirit, that you, would, that you would feed our souls even now. Help us to see more and more and more and more and more of you this week, this day, even on this Lord's day. Help it to not stop at the door as we make our way to the car. Yet somebody's going to trip and scrape their knee. Somebody's going to have to probably almost have a wreck trying to get out of our this forsaken uh, entrance into our space. I just I pray that you would help us to not get distracted by the realities of this world and help us to instead focus on the realities of our Savior. 
the one who paid the penalty for our sin, the one who died the death that we deserve, that we might become sons and daughters of God. God, help us to live in that identity and help us to give you the glory. Help us to give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.